Um, Matthew, one of the pastors. If you didn't notice in that video, Elizabeth has something on her hand that she was kept touching during that video. She kept touching it. And one of the reasons she's really busy is that she's planning a wedding. And so Tiffany and I are so privileged. Brings us great joy. We get to walk alongside them through some premarital counseling. So thank you, Elizabeth, for sharing your story. Um, also, I wanted to, to talk uh, real quick, just make mention of the fact that we, we had a Women's Connect yesterday as a church, and we had uh, about 200 women all across the H2O network who logged on for a couple hours and who bonded and connected and as women to grow in their walk with the Lord. And so I just wanted to celebrate that. Um, if you did not know, we are a part of this larger network of H2O churches. And so we had folks all over Ohio and Indiana and Michigan on that call. And a lot of the BG staff, our staff women helped pull that event off. And so we are so thankful for them. And uh, if you didn't know, we've got amazing women leaders around this church, and we love them. We value their voice. And so we're just thankful that so many women turned out to, to grow uh, in their faith and their walk with the Lord. So wanted to bring that up and celebrate that real quick. Uh, yeah, and we can clap for that. Um, So now we're going to transition into James. We've been in James the last few weeks, and if you've been with us, I'm wondering if any of you feel like you're getting a little bit beat up by James. I feel like every Sunday I come in here, and I think I'm doing okay, I think I'm doing well, and then then we open the Word, and it's like I'm in this boxing match, match and I just got hit again, and I'm struggling, and I'm kind of stammering around because James has this way of just like going right for the jugular. He has this way of just speaking to the actual issues of our hearts and exposing them. He does not mince words. He speaks with intensity and he speaks with passion. And he uses really powerful language and we'll see that today. James' focus is on faith in real life. Faith in real life. How cool is that? That he's talking about sort of street-level Christianity. What does this actually look like in real life? What does it look like to be a follower of Jesus? Well, how, does our, how do our lives change when we choose to follow Jesus? What a gloriously simple but immeasurably important question, right? So James' central theme is this. Faith in Jesus as Savior produces obedience to Jesus as Lord, or it's not faith in Jesus. Let me say that again. Faith in Jesus as Savior it will always produce obedience to Jesus as Lord, or it's not actually faith in Jesus. See, James has this way of holding faith and obedience together. And this is what James knows, what I think he wants us to know. Jesus does not just have the grace to save you, to save your life. He has the authority to rule your life. Doesn't just have grace to save you, but he has the authority to rule you. And we don't have to be scared by that because what we know that he wants for us is good because he is good. But he has authority over all of our lives. And James is laying out what he calls earlier the righteous life that God desires. The righteous life that God desires faith in real life. It's uh, it's a life fully abandoned to God. It's a life swallowed up by passion for God. It's a life marked by the death of our old self and the coming more and more like Jesus. 
and doing so in joy, right? In joy, we sell everything to buy the field to get Jesus. And what James does so well is he takes this kind of big lofty vision, right, of the righteous life that God desires, obedience and faith held together. He takes this lofty vision and then he describes what it looks like down to the practicals. So far, he's talked about enduring trials, resisting temptation, not showing favoritism, honoring the poor, not just listening to God, but doing what he says, putting our faith in action. And today, James is going to address our speech, the words that come out of our mouth. Who's nervous? Anyone nervous? Anyone? Yeah, okay. <laughs> One person is nervous. Okay, uh, I am. Um, but it makes so much sense that James would address our speech, right? If it's faith in real life, the reality is we talk. Some of us, like me, talk a lot and love to hear the sound of our own voices. And so, of course, the God who would lay claim to every part of us, who has authority over every part of us and who wants to utterly transform every part of us, of course, God would want to say something about the words that come out of our mouth. And most of us, just at mention of the fact that today is going to be about our speech, probably think something like, yeah, you know what? I could probably do better with, with how I talk, right? I could probably choose my words more wisely. Or maybe sometimes I just need to be quiet. I just need to not say what I'm thinking. And those might all be true. Those might all be helpful. But the Spirit of God via the man James wants to go much deeper than that. He has a work that he wants to do that's way bigger than those lines. See, the big idea today is that God cares deeply about the words we speak and the place from which they come. He cares deeply about the words we speak and the place from which they come. He wants to redeem and transform us so thoroughly from the inside out that our words reflect his own character. He wants to change us Make us more like himself so that the words that come out of our mouth speak to who he is. They capture his essence, his nature. And that sounds like a beautiful, compelling vision, doesn't it? Man, that our words get to tell the people listening what God is like and who he is. It's a beautiful vision. Right? And there's something so human about speaking, right? being made in the image of the God who speaks. There's something fundamentally human. There is this gift that we've been given to speak. What are we doing with that gift? Right? It sounds like a compelling vision, but most of us would say that we fall miserably short. Right? Instead, we wound people, usually the people we love most. We curse, we complain, we gossip, we mock. And so how then do we reclaim this gift that we have, this power that we possess with our tongue? First, I need to do this. I need to acknowledge what we're up against because most of us would say, you know what? I don't do well in this area. If we're honest, I don't do well in this area. What are we up against? There's a few things happening in the culture, within the church, that I think is sabotaging us. Okay, so I promise I will get to James. I ha I, we will spend time in James, but I feel like we have to acknowledge these things because they're set up against us. Okay, the first one sounds something like this. It was the subject of last Sunday, 
doesn't matter how you live. What matters is what you believe. Or put another way, it doesn't matter if you live wrongly as long as you believe rightly. Can I ask a question? And I'm trying not to commit a sin of the tongue as I ask it because I don't want to be condescending and I don't want to be snarky. But my question is, guys, how is that working out for us? How's that definition of the faith working out for us? It's sown confusion within the church. It's sabotaged our witness in the world. We have accepted a vision of Christianity that tolerates ungodly character and behavior because it's covered with this razor-thin veneer of so-called faith. Can I get an amen? Please, someone help me. Okay. (laughs) Right? We've so dumbed it down. In this vision of faith, right, we claim that Jesus is Lord. We claim the name of Jesus, but we live by our own priorities, our own dreams, our own passions. We determine what the fulfilling life is. We, we decide what's abundant life, and then we go chase after it. It is false faith with no obedience, and it's exactly what James is warning us about. If Jesus is Savior, hear this, church. If Jesus is Savior, then he is Lord And if he is Lord, then there is absolutely no part of your life that he does not rule over. There's no part of your life that he doesn't lay claim over. We've bought the lie that if we say the right words, right, we're good. And then we let entire, entire areas of our life go untouched by the authority of Jesus. Listen, we cannot claim that Jesus is Lord of our lives, but live like we are the ones on the throne. We cannot live with such little integrity, church. Amen? Okay. Think of this in terms of our speech, right? If if we believe the lie that Jesus doesn't lay claim to everything that comes off of our lips, then we can say whatever we want. Then what rules our speech? Well, what I think and how I feel. What I think and how I feel rules what I say. Doesn't have anything to do with the gospel. Doesn't have anything to do with Jesus. Doesn't have anything to do with the character of God. It's just me, 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 me. And if we think that this has not crept into the church, we are wildly mistaken. It's happening. This is not an out there problem. This is an in here problem. Okay, the second one sounds like this. I gotta get to James eventually. Of course God is real, but he's not actually present in the everyday moments of my life, right? He's there in the big moments, but the, the day-to-day, he's not there. I don't know if he even wants to be. Of course, he loves me, but that love rarely, if ever, gets to me on an average day. Of course, he's powerful. He's all-powerful, right? But that power never quite makes its way into my life on the average day. Or, and here's where we're going today, of course, God could hear what I say. I mean, he's all-powerful, right? He knows everything I'm going to say, and he knows what it's going to be before I even say it. But if we're really honest, we can say that we believe that in our, like we can talk about it, but the way that we live, we believe something very different. We believe that he's not there, that he's not hearing, that he's not caring what we say. Can anyone relate to this? Am I hitting on something? Am I striking? Okay, hear this church. The mercy of God is too great that he would allow us to persist in sinning with our words. His mercy is too great. He is present, he is near in the most mundane moments of our lives. Last week, 
Actually, in this past week, a few days ago, my kids were getting ready for bed. We have four kids. It's, an, it's a circus all the time. But bedtime is where it gets real crazy. Our kids, they just get the most dis, like, misbehaving creatures on the planet. They sabotage against us. They go to war with us over bedtime. So it is wild and it is crazy getting those kids to fall asleep. And in the middle of that, my daughter Phoebe, who's eight, uh, I said to her, because she was asking where something was. I don't even remember where it was or what it was. It was down in the basement of our house. We have a finished basement, okay? Not dark, not scary, not dingy, not dirty. It's a finished basement. Looks like, looks like a house. And I said, Phoebe, can you go down and get this thing? Hurry, hurry, hurry up and get this because you got to go to bed. And she said, I'm scared. I'm scared to go down there. It's dark. And I'm like, there's light switches all the way down there. There's multiple options for light switches as you walk down there. Like, turn on the lights. And she's like, Daddy, I'm, I'm just too scared. I can't do it. And what came out of my mouth the next 90 seconds was so woefully sinful in the presence of God. This is what I said to my daughter. I just, I just railed on her. I did the thing where you go like, well, has anything ever happened to you? We've lived in this house two years. Has a monster ever attacked you down there? Has anything scary ever happened to you? On and on and on and on again. Because it's crazy and it's a frenzy and I'm just trying to get these kids to bed. And I did not tame my tongue. And I didn't even realize the effect of what I was doing. And so part of the bedtime routine is Tiffany and I, we, we divide up and we, we go visit the kids, but we don't actually divide up. We, all, we each go to each of the four kids' rooms and we talk to them and pray over them and it's why bedtime takes like eight hours in my house because we have four kids and we each can make our personal visit. So we're doing that. I go up to Phoebe's room. I can tell that something's not right. And she's like, Dad, the, the thing that just happened like five minutes ago, that's what's bothering me. And she's like, Dad, it's, I feel like you're just making fun of me. I was just like, the mercy of God, he would not let me persist in my sin. He would not tolerate that in his grace and his love. He would use my eight-year-old daughter to tell me that I have sinned against her. I have sinned against him in the way that I spoke to her, in the things that came off of my tongue. If we don't believe that God is in the everyday moment, guys, we got to just open our eyes and see he will use the people around us. He's not going to let us persist in it. Phoebe's words, they were, they were so hard to hear. And I, I said, I'm so sorry, honey. I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to do that. And I apologized. And she said, Dad, I forgive you because I love you. Like, talk about, like, my kids disciple me. You know that, right? They do that. Her words were hard to hear, but they were spoken out of love for me as her dad. And today, we're going to open James right now, 15 minutes after we started. We're going to finally open James. And he's going to say hard things to us. We have to remember that they are the words of a God who loves us, who is merciful and kind. It's his grace that leads him to, open, to show us this mirror into our hearts. All right, let's go. James 3. I'm going to go out of order. Um, don't have time to explain why. And then we're going to stop and we're going to pause along the way. James 3, 
Verse one, not many of you should become teachers. Oh boy, that's me. My fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. Now, I can't talk about this a lot, but basically what James is saying here is that those of us who steward the word of God that's been handed down throughout the generations, who declare Jesus, who set out what it looks like to live in faithful discipleship and obedience to him, we have a weighty task and we cannot take it lightly. And that's why we, we, we take that seriously at this church. That task of teaching, of preaching, of stewarding the resource that we have of the scriptures that have been handing down to us is serious business. There will be some sort of stricter judgment. I don't know what that means because I'm deathly afraid to go read about it. Okay, number two, we all stumble in many ways. Anyone who is never at fault in what they say is perfect, able to keep their whole body in check. And we're gonna skip to seven. All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and sea creatures are being tamed and have been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. We read verse eight again. No human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. I'm just, I'm just astounded right away at the language that James is using, right? It's such powerful language. We can, we can tame a lion, but we cannot stop sinning with our tongues. It's a restless evil. It's poison. It's deadly. And we do not have the ability to stop in our own power, even if we wanted to. Maybe you're sitting here and you're thinking like, you know what? I'm not that bad. I stopped cussing a long time ago. Awesome. That's great. We're, we're like generally anti-cussing here. That's great. I'm, I'm not the scream and yell kind of person. Awesome. But let me ask you this. If, if I were to play a tape of everything that's come out of your mouth this last month right now from the stage for everyone in this room to hear, would there maybe be something there that you think didn't really capture the essence in the heart of God. It didn't display his character. Guys, here's the reality. It, or maybe not this last month. <laughs> How about this last week? What about on the drive into worship today? You know, it's so easy to sin with our tongues. It is so easy. There's like this endless amount of possibilities for us to sin with our tongues. I'm gonna read a really long list to you on purpose, to help you realize just how easy it is to sin with our tongues. Here we go. Hasty words, arrogant words, selfish words, the self-serving exaggeration, the manipulative flattery, the sly suggestion, the snarky sarcasm. Pause on that one. Snarky, okay. The ungodly rant, Words of condemnation, words of criticism, words of anger, words of slander, words of gossip, words of mockery, words of self-hatred, impure words, impatient words, rebellious words, belittling words, boastful words, quarrelsome words, words that inflict guilt, words that produce shame, words that demean, words that cast doubt, words that start fights, and on and on and on and on. So many opportunities to sin with our tongues. First thing James wants us to know is that our words declare our deep brokenness. 
Our words indict us. They incriminate us. They, maybe more than anything else, reveal just how broken and sinful we are. And we cannot, we cannot fix the problem by ourselves. The one thing that we all demonstrate is our inability to tame our tongues. Now, temptation at this moment, right, maybe for you is to think, God, I'm so, I'm so glad, Lord, that, that, that we're teaching this for the person that came with me today. I am so glad that my roommate is hearing this. I'm so glad that my friend is hearing this. I'm so glad that my spouse is hearing this. Please don't do that. Please do not do that. God is holding up this mirror, James chapter three, and he's revealing who you are. He's describing you. He keeps going. Let's go back. We're going to go back to verse three and go through six. When we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal. Or take ships as an example, although they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. Could the language get any stronger? I mean, James is trying to get our attention. Like Jesus... James loves to use illustrations. He takes these things from the physical world, right? And his point in talking about the rudder of a ship or the spark that sets ablaze a fire is that there is a disproportionate amount of power in a very small thing. Small things can have enormous impact, right? That's his point. That's what he wants us to know. The second thing that James wants us to hear in this passage is that our words possess enormous life shaping power. Life shaping, life altering power is at the tip of our tongues and it is not a small matter. The Proverbs are full of wisdom on how to use our words and how to use our speech. One of them says in chapter 18, verse 21, it says, death and life are in the power of the tongue. Death and life are in the power of the tongue and those who love it will eat its fruit. Here's the message, the paraphrase translation. Words kill, words give life. They're either poison or they're fruit. You choose. See what I mean about getting hit in the face in a boxing match, right? That's what James is doing. That's what the Holy Spirit is doing. Is doing in my life. We rarely speak neutral words. Our words are moving in a direction. They have a trajectory. They're either moving toward life and they're words of hope and reconciliation and encouragement and wisdom and forgiveness and love or they're words of death. They're moving towards death. They're words of anger and condemnation and gossip and slander and criticism and self-righteousness. We know this is true experientially, right? We bear the wounds of those who have said things to us that we cannot get out of our minds. Some of us remember word for word the things, the awful, harmful things that people have done to us, or said to us, right? right? We, can, we can tell you, we could paint the picture of the exact moment in which someone spoke violently to us. 
And whether we know it or not, some of us in this room are being driven. Your life, your emotions, your decisions are being driven by that wound. This is how real and how serious the power of words is. That line that sticks and stones can break my bones is a flat out lie. It's not true. So, (laughs) let me say this. Not only can words harm us, but they can heal us. Think of these moments in my life. I wish I had time to go through examples, but like tends to be when I'm the most discouraged. Tends to be when I come to the realization that I've been entangled in sin. It tends to be when I'm down, when I'm really insecure, discouraged that my wife and friends have spoken life into me. They have spoken with their words the very things that I am not believing in that moment. And they pray over me. They use that gift of speech to pray and to ask God and to contend with me and for me for God to show up and do some work in me. And I can remember the exact words that they said. I pray that you have voices like that in your life. We possess massive power to either inflict harm or to speak life with what comes out of our our mouths. Are we taking seriously this power? Are we taking it seriously? And if that's not enough, James has one more thing to say about our words. Verses 9 to 12. And it does not get any easier. With the tongue, we praise our Lord and Father. And with it, we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be so. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers and sisters, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. Here's the third thing that James wants us to know. Our words expose the true character of our hearts. Right again, he goes back to physical illustration, salt water, can't come from fresh water. A fig tree is never going to produce olives. And this is the most incriminating thing that he could say. Because what we want to do is we want to say, well, I didn't mean that. I know I said this thing, but I didn't actually mean it. Well, it was just an accident, right? Or that's not actually how I really felt. But not, no. No, it's not. That's not what's happening. Remember what Jesus said. Out of the overflow of the, of the heart, the mouth speaks. What's on the interior is going to find its way out on the exterior. We can say we didn't mean it, but the reality is, is that our words proclaim what's actually happening inside of us. And what's happening inside of us is a war a war between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of self, a war between Jesus on the throne or us trying to push him off and climb our way on. Sometimes we think our hearts are so pure. They're not. They're not. Paul Tripp, whose sermon on this passage I listened to like five times, and a lot of this is coming out, a lot of his insight an application on the text is coming out here. He said, our problem with our tongues is not a vocabulary problem. It's not the words that we choose. It's, it's not a technique problem. Oh, I should have brought that up in a different context or maybe I should have set that up a little bit better. It's a heart 
problem. The true condition of your heart is always revealed by the words you speak. You have never spoken a word that is not ruled by your heart. If the problem is in here, then the solution has to come here. Has to happen at a deeper level. We need transformed hearts. We need hearts surrendered to King Jesus, right? Hearts and lives that are fully submitted to his lordship over everything. Hearts that see the value in every single person that we're tempted to lash out and wound with our words. We need hearts that are humble and kind and gracious and patient and loving. We need the heart of God. Amen, right? That's what we need. And maybe you feel beat up right now. I know I did all week long. But God holds up this mirror. He holds it up as an act of divine grace. It's an act of divine grace. It's, it's his mercy, right? That we would be made aware of our untamed tongues. It's an act of his mercy. He wounds us with conviction so that he can heal us with grace. He wounds us with conviction so that he can heal us with his grace. See, no human can tame the tongue, but God can. And here's how he does it. He gives us the new hearts we need. He gives us the transformed hearts, right? The shocking beauty of the gospel is this, right? That God himself became one of us for us in Christ Jesus, one of us for us. He lived a perfectly righteous life, including the words that came out of his mouth. Every word of Jesus's perfectly radiated the very heart and nature of God the Father. And he went Listen to this, without words. He chose not to speak, not to fight back, not to resist. He went without words to the cross as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, including the sins of our tongues. He suffered, he died, and he was buried for us, enduring the punishment destined for you and me. And three days later, he rose victorious over all the powers of hell and darkness that still litter the landscape of our lives. He gave himself to us on the cross and he continues to give himself to us. The most amazing part of the gospel for me is not that that Jesus went to the cross and, and died and achieved my salvation, but it's that he, since that moment of me embracing that, of recognizing my sin and turning to him in repentance, which if you have not done that, I would plead with you to make that decision, to turn, to declare your brokenness before God, that every moment since then, he has not left me. He's continuing to pursue me. He's continuing to not give up on me. He is transforming me every single day of my life. He has promised to give us a heart just like his. How amazing is that? He will never leave us. God, the spirit comes and he dwells inside of us and he starts to transform us and he will not stop. The spirit will not stop that work until the day that we see Jesus face to face and we enter into the glory that we were made for. So what do we have to do? 
We can't tame our tongues. What do we have to do? We have to fall on our faces and ask Jesus to give us new hearts. We have to say, I need rescue. I need grace. I need you. And when we say those words, we can say them utterly, completely, entirely unafraid because our God is rich in mercy. Guys, I love the gray. I love the in-between, but here's the reality. I really see two options for us when we encounter a passage like this. We, we take an assessment of our words and we either minimize, we justify, we give excuses, we make explanations, we downplay, and we continue to hide or we fall on our faces and we ask Jesus to do the thing that we know he wants to do, which is to give us new hearts. We fall in repentance and he picks us up and he heals us, he breathes his life into us suspect that that might need to happen for most of us in this room. I pray that it would. I'll say one more thing. I'm tempted to not <laughs> because of the time, but I'm going to say it. Think about the cultural moment that we're living in. So that's you, what I just shared, but let's zoom out. This cultural moment that we find ourselves in, our world has never been, at least in our lifetime, more divided. Disunity, division, demonizing, the words that have come out of our mouth in this country, in this place, have been hard. Name-calling, mocking, righteous boasting. And then I think on the flip side of that, the words of despair and hopelessness on the lips of those walking through their darkest days, facing depression, anxiety, mental health struggles. And I just think, church, what, what kind of words are going to come out of our mouth? In the face of that, do we see the opportunity that God is setting before us to speak life? What would it look like to be a church full of people whose words speak life and hope to those around us? To be a church full of people that aren't just adding to the noise of worthless speech that dominates our world, but that we would capture the very essence of God and love people well with our words. Will you start today? You do that now. Let's pray. Father, thank you. It's hard. This passage is hard. We come to you desperate, well aware, I pray, of the ways that we fall short. God, we just we we take hope. In fact, all of our hope is in the fact that when we come humble, when we come broken and contrite, you do not turn us away. You do not despise us in our brokenness. Instead, you love, love to lavish us with grace and mercy. And so God, would you do a work in our hearts? And would that work transform the way that we speak? Lord, if there's something that we need to say to someone even today, Holy Spirit, empower us, embolden us to do that work. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.